Welcome to the Ecclesiastical History Society podcast. The EHS exists to explore all aspects and all periods of the history of Christianity. And in our podcasts, we welcome guests to discuss a wide range of topics. If you want to know more about the EHS, then visit our website, ecclesiasticalhistorysociety.com, or our social media pages. Thank you for joining us on today's EHS podcast episode. I'm your host, Angela Platt. I'm a PhD student at Royal Holloway University of London, currently investigating how love is valued and experienced in religious families of old dissenters in the 18th and 19th centuries. Today, I'm privileged to be joined by Reverend Dr. Robert Evans, who is chaplain at Christ College and an affiliated lecturer at the Faculty of Divinity in Cambridge. He read history and theology at Peterhouse and completed his PhD under the supervision of Professor Rosamond McKittrick in 2018. Today, we're going to be discussing his forthcoming monograph, which collates his PhD research, which is tentatively titled God and History in the Carolingian World. I'm so grateful to be here today with Dr. Bob Evans to talk about his recent project on God and history in the Carolingian world. Uh, Thank you so much for joining us, Bob. Thank you for having me. Yeah, of course. It's our pleasure. And my first question for you, so regarding your research, how important was the past to the Carolingian world? So what we call the Carolingian world was an empire that at its height stretched across most of Western Europe. Um, So from the Pyrenees to the Carpathians, from the North Sea to the Adriatic, uh, it emerged in the early to mid 8th century, uh, but especially under its most famous king, Charlemagne. Uh, And although it became politically divided in the middle of the 9th century, it retained a great deal of cultural unity. Uh, And that's one reason why it's so fascinating. Because as well as being a major political achievement, the Carolingian Empire saw an enormous array of intellectual creativity and productivity. And a big part of that is an interest in history and the past. Of course, most societies are interested in the past in some way, at least in their own past. But the Carolingians took this to another level. So, for example, most libraries for which we have any record include lots of copies, both of uh, earlier histories written by um, earlier societies that they copied um, and also new compositions written contemporaneously. Um, And numerous non uh, historical documents, so law codes, charters, that kind of thing, often invoke a particular past. And if you think about how much effort goes into producing a book in this period, Um, You've got to write the whole thing out by hand, for one thing. There's a lot of time and resources being invested in knowing about the past. And so thinking specifically about religious people in the Carolingian world, how and perhaps why was the past valuable for them? One of the key features of the Carolingian Empire, as well as all the intellectual activity, as well as all of the history, is that they took their Christian faith pretty seriously. And Christianity is fundamentally a historical religion. Uh, The key events of Christian salvation take place in history at particular times and places. And that means that even though God is outside of time, Christians encounter him within time. 
and that brings uh, history and religion together very closely. A great example of this is in understanding the Bible. Uh, Carolingian preachers and commentators will often try to locate the chronology of the Bible or biblical events within what they know about ancient history more broadly. Uh, for example, uh, every Christmas we're reminded that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus. Uh, the astute Carolingian scribe is immediately wanting to work out who was Caesar Augustus, when did he rule, and to do that they need to go and find some Roman history books uh, to work it all out. Another example is liturgy. Uh, so every Sunday Christian liturgy rehearses again and again particular historical events, uh, whether from the Bible or, or perhaps the lives of the saints, and that again requires knowledge and engagement with the past. So early medieval Christians habitually connect thinking about the past with their Christian beliefs and practices. So what have other scholars already noted or researched about this subject that you're looking into? Well, the importance of the link between religion and history is pretty well established now, but it wasn't always so. Uh, if you go back to the 19th and early 20th century, uh, modern historians could be quite sniffy about all of this religious nonsense cluttering up their sources. Uh, they're what they wanted from a source was to know facts and dates and sort of what really happened. Uh, and they felt that when sources talked about miracles and um, Christian happenings or, or God getting involved, th this wasn't true history and was somehow getting in the way. And you need to, to clear all of that away to get to the real history at the heart of your source. Uh, things have moved on a little bit since then because we now try to understand our sources as entire texts, the products of their authors for their times. So if a source is going on uh, about, about God or using religious language, that's seen as integral to the text. Uh, and a lot of work has been done, uh, particularly for the, actually before the Carolingian period, to show how transformative Christianity was for the writing of history. Uh, if you think about uh, history writing in the classical world, obviously they occasionally talk about uh, their own gods or about fate, but the uh, sudden appearance of the Christian God and Christian themes in history writing uh, is, is a fairly, fairly big transformation. So if you read a modern survey of history writing in the early Middle Ages, um, they'll all say something about how these historians, these writers about the past, often talk about God or bring Christian concepts to bear uh, on their work. And that's great. It's clearly there in the sources. I guess what I'm keen to push back on a little bit is that it's sometimes assumed that this use of religious language in writing about the past is kind of inevitable, almost a, a cliche. Given that these scribes and thinkers are Christian, it's obvious that they're going to talk about God. Why, why wouldn't they? Uh, and there's a sort of sense in which the ubiquity of religious language in these sources, and it is pretty ubiquitous, gets confused with it being uniform, that it's all basically the same. Um, and I think one problem with that is actually by analogy with the political language of these sources. They will all, for example, go on about their particular king or emperor. Uh, they'll talk about kingdoms and empires. But a lot of really great work has been done on seeing and examining how even the same word, the same vocabulary and the same ideas can be deployed in very different ways and for very different reasons by different authors. 
And I think it's important that we try to do something similar with their religious language. Uh, so you mentioned the value and interest of using different sources. What sources have you used in your research? Can you tell us a bit about them? Sure. I basically focus on any historical narrative written in the Carolingian Empire from basically the mid to late 8th century through to the, the very early 10th, because um, they write a lot of histories. As, as we've said, they're quite interested in, in the past. Um, they take uh, many different forms. So some of them are biographies of an important king or emperor. There's quite a few texts that we know as annals. So an, a set of annals is a history that's structured according to the years of the incarnation. Uh, in the year 749, this happened. In the year 750, this happened. In the year 751, this happened, etc., etc. Et they sound quite basic. Some of them become really quite sophisticated literary uh, works. Uh, most of these um, works are actually uh, anonymous, um, which you might think makes it hard to study them. What is clear is that many of them are, that the authors are closely connected in some way to the Carolingian court or one of the Carolingian courts. They are, I guess we might call them stakeholders or participants in, in Carolingian government. Uh, that doesn't mean that they're actually courtiers with immediate access to the king, but they might be scribes in a monastery which has got close relationships uh, to the king uh, and whose abbot is a, is a key political advisor uh, or, or, or something like that. These are writers who are working from within and on behalf of communities that care about the political life of the Carolingian Empire. And they're, by writing histories, they are offering their own perspective on what has happened, and as is often the case when you write a narrative of what's recently happened that's political, they're, they're making their own claims about what perhaps should happen in the future too. What's also interesting and, and quite important for the Carolingian histories that you can't do so easily for earlier histories is that you can, uh, th there's lots of them writing around the same time about the same events. So you can compare several different authors' responses to the same event. In some cases, you can even see how they're responding to each other. So you get a sense, and Helmut Reimitz has done some really good work on this, of a, of a dialogue among Carolingian historians of saying, oh, I quite like the way you told the story of, of the early Carolingians, say, but I didn't quite agree with the way you envisage this aspect of political life. So I'm going to slightly adjust it uh, for my own uh, version of the history uh, or the way I'm going to write the history of my own times. So thinking about the variety of different histories that you're looking at within the Carolingian Empire and these different perspectives, I mean, do you, can you call to mind any examples in which there was a very diverging perspective of an era, of a point or episode in the Carolingian history? Sure. So I'll, I'll give you a political example and then a religious example. A political example is in the histories written around 790, so kind of the height of Charlemagne's reign. There's a really key history called the Royal Frankish Annals that is written in association with Charlemagne's court. It is very big on emphasising the importance of the Franks. Uh, the Franks are the, are the people that the Carolingians rule. It goes on about how the Franks are awesome, they've defeated all of these other uh, other peoples um, and that being a Frank is is generally the best thing ever 
and is defined by their obedience to the Carolingians uh, and generally being good at fighting, that sort of thing. As you go through the 790s and, and other histories of the same events start to get written, the emphasis on Frankishness suddenly starts to get reduced. And the reason for this is that the empires brought in other peoples, Bavarian, Saxons, Frisians, and there's more of a sense of trying to create a, a coalition of different identities that will work together. So emphasizing how brilliant the Franks are doesn't quite work anymore when you're trying to pursue something that's a bit more, uh, for want of a better word, global. So that's a really interesting shift that you can see in texts in a relatively short period of time, but which seem to be responding to, another, uh, to one another. A really fascinating example for, for my own purposes is that uh, the Royal Frankish Annals that I've just referred to talks a lot about God. Sure, uh, we can think a bit more about that, that in a minute, but it go, goes on a lot about how God helps the Franks win all of these victories. Another writer, maybe 10, 15 years later, it's not entirely clear when, rewrites the Royal Frankish Annals, the same same period, much of the same material and events, but removes all of the references to God. Now, that's a pretty dramatic change and a pretty big disagreement between two historians writing in other ways in much the same context, but a pretty big disagreement about how to write history. The reason for that particular disagreement, I think, and I've argued this in an article, is that the victories celebrated in the earlier text were seen as done and dusted. It, it all worked out well, and you could clearly say God had been on the Frank side. In the 10 to 15 year gap, a lot of those victories had unraveled. The peoples who had been conquered had rebelled or apostatized from their, their Christian commitments. So the later text is a bit more pessimistic, possibly a bit cynical, and I think a little bit wary about being too triumphalistic. But it's a really good example of how two texts that on the surface look quite quite similar, they're both sets of annals written by someone with some relationship to Charlemagne's court. And yet because of this, uh, the, the different political context has decided to talk about God in a very, very different way. Thank you. I, I have one more question about your sources, if I may. And you you noted that some of your sources are anonymous, um, but I wonder if you could issue any comments on the gender of the authors of your sources. Are, are they all men who are writing as histories or do you have any women or do you even sense that any of them might have been women, the anonymous ones, for instance? Very good question. All of the named ones we know are by men. There is, however, one text known as the Annals of Metz, which it's been highly disputed over the gender of the author because it's not entirely clear where it was written, when and for whom. One of the options is Metz, which would have meant that it was at a, a male monastery and written by a monk. But it's also been suggested that it was written at Shell, which was a convent. And the abbess of that convent was Charlemagne's sister called Gisela. And there's a pretty good argument to be made that either Gisela or someone working for her wrote the annals of Metz uh, for what would have been Gisela's nephew uh, as a sort of guide for how to be a good uh, Carolingian king. Uh, 
the argument's partly about the manuscript transmission, but it would also explain how the author has quite a close relationship to the Carolingian family. And there's a sense of family memories being being passed down. And I, I like to imagine it's, it's entirely speculative, uh, of course, uh, of the young Gisela listening to her grandfather telling stories of his campaigns uh, around the hearth and actually paying attention um, and keeping notes so that later on uh, she could uh, write them down in a set of annals. You've already hinted at uh, the answer to my next question, but for my next question, I want to look into your central argument for this mm -hmm. research, in which you you say that you're focusing upon something called God agency. I wonder if you could tell us what is God agency and how does this develop in your research? Good question, one I've been thinking a lot, quite a lot about. God's agency in a text is simply when God does something. So you're reading one of these annals or these chronicles and it says God did X. God is syntactically speaking the subject of a verb or a, or a similar sort of construction. So in the Royal Frankish Annals, as we mentioned already, they'll often describe the Franks defeating their enemies and the phrase that keeps getting repeated, with the Lord helping. So the, the analyst is clearly emphasizing that the Lord was active in the Franks' uh, conquest, and they that particular author repeats it very regularly. So you get this very strong cumulative sense that this is a, this is a big deal. Now, doctrinally, this is what theologians often call providence, or once we get to the early modern period, divine sovereignty. Uh, the idea that God is omnipotent; He can do all things; that He governs uh, history. The reason why. I prefer the phrase God's agency or divine agency is that it's a it's a very literary category. Uh, it's important to realize that these histories are literary. They are narrative. They're, they're stories. And that means that God is in one sense a character within the story. So if we want to understand how God fits into these texts, we need to take that literary dimension uh, seriously. Where this gets interesting, as I've already hinted, and the sort of point point of the project is that as we compare how different authors write about God as an agent with their within their narratives, on the first glance it can look very similar, very cliche, but as you look more closely, you see a lot more variety, a lot more choice, a lot more deliberation about how they want to talk about the way that God has been active in the recent past. Uh, the, the biggest example of this I've mentioned is where one author straightforwardly removes God from an earlier narrative. But there's lots of more subtle but, but quite important um, decisions that an author needed to make. So, for example, does God act a lot within the narrative? In the Royal Frankish Annals, he's, he's acting sort of every other paragraph uh, in, in other histories. He'll appear only once or twice to act. But when you look closer, you, you may see that that's actually an integral point of the narrative and that God's highlighting a major turning point. Another question is, what is it that God is actually doing? Is God helping to bring victory? Is God uh, showing mercy on, on an oppressed community? Is he bringing judgment on, on the villains uh, of the narrative? Is he perhaps correcting 
the community for whom uh, the, the history is written. There's lots of other choices and decisions that, that, that one can look for. Is God's agency very tangible, very concrete, what we might call miraculous? Uh, are there sort of uh, visions? Do angels appear? Or is it that God is acting simply as the fundamental cause of a human activity? So the Royal Frankish Annals, again, it's almost always the Frankish armies that are doing stuff, but the author is ascribing what they do to God as well. So thinking perhaps again about historiography on this topic, how has mm -hmm. God's agency typically been viewed within medieval history writing? So as I said earlier, uh, plenty of scholars recognise that this is a fairly common feature of early medieval histories and that it's probably important. Uh, those historians who've taken this a bit further fall in, in, into several different camps. Going back to the 70s, uh, 1970s, and there was some really important groundbreaking work started to be done in the 70s looking at medieval historians as not just sort of dumb recorders of events, but as, as intellectual thinkers in their own right. But the God's agency stuff tended to work actually against that. It tended to still be dismissed as an example of their superstition or their lack of intellectual sophistication. For example, Richard Southern, who wrote a whole series of really important articles on sort of historians as intellectuals, drew this distinction between what he called theological understandings of causation and historical understandings of causation. And he felt that by talking about God causing things, which is what divine agency is, this wasn't proper history. So he actually uh, talks about the lack of historical machinery, is his phrase, um, in, in these historians, because they're, they're too quick to ascribe events to God. Now, I think that's a problematic distinction for, ver for various reasons. Another, another angle some modern historians take is to see the language of God's agency purely as politically motivated, even propagandistic. Uh, so Beryl Smalley, who again wrote an important book in the 70s on medieval historians, talked about how early medieval historians made the Christian God into a tribal war God is her, her phrase, uh, by showing him giving victory in battle. And he was simply there to justify the aggression of, of a given king uh, or, or, or community. Um, and that latter angle, I think, has continued in some ways in modern scholarship, a sense that God only exists in these texts to make the, the author's heroes look good, to show that God is in your side and therefore that you're right. And that if you're thinking of these texts and their, their audiences, the point is you should obey the Carolingians because God's on their side and therefore they're legitimate and deserve your obedience. So tendencies perhaps to take an overly cynical uh, view of, of, of what's going on. That being said, there's been some really great work done on other periods uh, and other concepts um, than God's agency and Carolingian uh, history writing. So I think this is a, this is a phenomenon that's better understood in the late antique context and in some of the central medieval uh, English contexts uh, as well. 
I think it's one of those classic cases where different periods progress at different paces. So thinking again about your argument then, uh, what were the implications of God's agency for contemporaries in this Carolingian period? I think the biggest one is the is less what it says about God and more what it says about human beings. If, if you are reading one of these histories, you will be left with an increasingly strong sense over the period of your own inability to do things, the contingency of your own actions, the dependence of any victories that you might win or any successes that you might have on God. I think this is important because it's tempting to read a lot of early medieval, but especially Carolingian discourse is quite triumphalist. It's quite confident. There's a lot about celebrating military prowess. Now, these histories do a bit of that. They're certainly very willing to celebrate military successes. But it's almost as though threading through it is this corrective that says, don't think you're as important as as might appear, because ultimately everything you've achieved depends upon God. You have simply been an intermediate cause of something that God intended to happen. Uh, and this incidentally is where I disagree with Richard Southern, because there is actually, when you look at it, quite a strong emphasis on what we might call historical causes. It's just that those historical causes are framed within a broader sense of divine agency. What this means is that these texts have quite a pastoral quality. Again, I don't think that they're purely propagandistic, purely political. I think there's an important religious function to these texts to train their readers who may have been very important people within the Carolingian state. They may have been soldiers. They may have been magistrates. Uh, they may have been counsellors uh, uh, for, for kings and emperors. A sense of training them to look at the world in a theologically robust way in which they had their duties. They they had actions that they needed to undertake, but that all of that needed to be understood as contingent upon what God uh, permitted. And what have you found most interesting or surprising in the course of your research? So I think this flows out of my previous answer is, is the pastoral quality of these texts. So one understanding of early medieval religion is that it's it's quite mechanistic, that if you do good, God will reward you. If you do bad, God will punish you. And you'll often get in the secondary literature, there's quite a lot of stuff about how the Carolingian Empire is built around trying to earn or merit divine favour to, to keep it going. And there's some sources one can bring to bear to, to justify that. What's interesting about the histories is that there's very little sense that a human character can do anything to deserve God's help. There's much more of an emphasis. There's The language focuses much more on the attitude of human characters. On, on their emotions and their affections and ultimately their relationship to God rather than whatever moral things they are doing to deserve God's help, um, which puts a slightly different spin on it. And it, it brings me back to this emphasis on contingency um, and what the histories are trying to engender in their readers is, I mean, put it really straightforwardly, is humility. 
a sense of humble dependence upon God, a sense of gratefully recognising where he has helped them in the past, a sense of, of hopeful dependence for the future, um, which, yeah, pushes against both the idea of these things being, these histories being triumphalist, it pushes against this sort of mechanistic view uh, of Carolingian uh, religion. Uh, and, and I think perhaps takes more seriously the, the three-dimensional sense of the people who are reading and writing these texts in the 8th and ninth centuries. I'd like to shift over some more personal or perhaps reflective questions, if I may. And sure. the first one is, what interested you in this arena of research? So the romantic answer is that I was putting together a master's proposal on uh, something to do with Vikings and Franks. And my supervisor sent me, prospective supervisor sent me away to read the Annals of Fulda, which are a late ninth century history. And I remember reading this. Uh, it was a, it was a dark and stormy night, to be very cliched, in, in, in the college library. And it was a page turner. I sort of got this really strong sense of how how good these historians are at telling stories and the way that God functioned in that storytelling. Uh, oh, this is this is actually quite fun. I'd like to know more about this. On another side, I think I'm aware, uh, being, being ordained, of the continuing pastoral relevance of this idea of God's agency, of divine providence. It, it's a very, very important theme in, in Christian theology. Still, it's a very important theme in the history of Christian theology. Um, and... The early Middle Ages felt like a bit of a, a gap, uh, and I wanted to sort of get to know it a bit better. So my next question for you then is, why do you believe that this avenue of research is significant or valuable? There's two things I think I'd like to say about this. One uh, I've touched on a few times, uh, and that's the importance of seeing these writers as actually quite good storytellers, of taking them seriously as, as the authors of literature. Now, it may not be Shakespeare, but these guys knew how to how to write well. And as I've got to grips with how they talk about God, it, it's given me an increasing appreciation for how literary questions can yield quite interesting results for the religious dimension of a set of texts. Um, in a sense, these aren't just sources. These are interesting works of art. And when we take them seriously in that way, you get some quite surprising results. The other side of it is taking seriously the idea of the theology um, of, of the Carolingian Empire and the early medieval world. Now, that's not a word I've mentioned so far, um, but that's what this is. This is literally historians and, and other authors talking about God and trying to embed that into their own lives and the lives of their communities. And I think that's, that, that should be self-evidently really valuable for those who want, of us who want to study Christian history. I think perhaps one tendency is that we focus a little bit more on religious practices, almost the sort of the horizontal dimension of, of the Christian life in past societies. I think it's really important to get to grips with how people do theology. And when I say do theology, I don't just mean in really thick manuscripts talking about predestination or the Trinity, but how they embed theology, theological themes into 
in some ways much more accessible, much more widely circulating um, uh, texts like good stories that these histories were. So my final official question for you uh, is what's next for you? I mean, I know you're working on this project right now, but are you working on anything else at the same time? Or do you have any plans for future projects that you'd like to do? What I would love to do, given the time and the resources, is to continue to push this question of theology within wider society. Um, how did quite complex theological ideas I mean, in this case, it's things like providence, but other other questions about the doctrine of God, the nature of God. How did those function and work beyond quite quite technical theological treaties in wider society? Because with the Carolingians, frankly, a lot of medieval societies, the, the, these were people who who cared about questions of divine impassibility or how to articulate the, the, the personhood of the sun. Um, and I'd love to engage a little bit more about how those conversations unfolded and took place uh, within wider society. So my final informal question I want to ask you uh, before you go, I was wondering if you can tell our listeners where they might go to find more information about your research? I mean, do you have a forthcoming publication that you're expecting to collate these into, or, or do you talk about them elsewhere as well? Well, studies in church history is a pretty good place to go, uh, because the church and the law and churches and education volumes have both got uh, my, actually some of my most up-to-date thoughts on the subject. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Ecclesiastical History Society podcast. Stay tuned for our next podcast episode, which will be advertised on our social media pages. If you're not currently a member of EHS, we highly recommend you consider doing so. It's a great opportunity to network with other like-minded historians and keep abreast of latest research in the field. More information is on our website, ecclesiasticalhistorysociety.com.